This morning we will be continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. That's what we've been doing for about a year now. In fact, just a little bit over a year. We've got, I think this is our 45th sermon in the series. Cameron preached one, I've done 44. Who's the better man? Cameron by far. I'm gaining, yeah. And we'll give you more if you want it. Uh, but uh, yeah, we've, we've been in it for about a year now. I think we started on July 2nd of last year. So it's exciting that, uh, that we've come this far and we're about halfway through the book. We're going to begin to examine John 11 this morning. Uh, it tells us about a, a close-knit family that experiences a tragedy. Lazarus, the brother of, of Mary and Martha, becomes terribly ill and suddenly dies, and then, of course, he's buried. But the story does not end there. It doesn't end in, in tragedy, in that bitter loss. Jesus uses Lazarus' unexpected death to, to display God's awesome power and to prove once again that he has been sent by the Father as the divine Son of God and Savior of the world. Now, I've taken John 11 and, and divided it into four sermons under the main heading, The Raising of Lazarus. And this morning, we're going to focus on the purpose, which is the first sermon, in verses 1 through 16. By way of context, Jesus had recently escaped Jerusalem because the religious leaders were trying to arrest and kill him for blasphemy, you know, for claiming that he is God. And he traveled to the other side of the Jordan River where John the Baptist once performed ministry. And many came to Jesus to hear the gospel, and many believed in him. If you rewind back to chapter 10, verses 33 to 42, you can see that there. So, in context, Jesus is now on the other side of the Jordan River doing ministry. And now we pick it up at John 11, verses 1 through 3. I'll begin reading. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, or Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Firstly, we're introduced to the four main characters of this story and historical event. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, that's the family, that's the close-knit family. And then, of course, we have the protagonist, the Lord Jesus. He'd be the main character. And it says Lazarus had become ill. Now, John provides no details about his illness. We don't know what he had or what it was that killed the man. And this is interesting that John doesn't provide details since he identified the illness of a Jewish official's son back in chapter 6, verses 46 through 54. That young man had fever. So John, I guess you could say normally, would give a description of what illness someone had. He at least did in that instance. But here he doesn't do that. According to Dr. Paul Kitchen, deadly illnesses such as pneumonia, Tuberculosis, polio, malaria, and smallpox were prevalent in first century Israel, especially in the region of Galilee. 
And the fastest killers in this group are malaria and smallpox. When the symptoms of these diseases first appear, the patient usually died. Now, we're talking back then where there was like no treatment, but they would die within three days of contracting and showing, not contracting, but showing the illness, the signs, or within two to three weeks. So malaria, first century malaria and smallpox killed a person pretty quickly. The survival or mortality rate on those two diseases was very, very low. And due to the quickness in which Lazarus died after initially becoming ill and showing those symptoms, it's likely that he had malaria or smallpox. Very likely. It's speculative, though. We don't know. But it could have been one of those things. Whatever it was, it was potent enough to put him in a bed, alarm his family, and kill him within a few days. And it also says that Lazarus lived in Bethany. Bethany was a small village on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about two miles east of Jerusalem, on the road to Jericho. In Hebrew, Bethany means house of figs. So Bethany was known as a place that produced figs, great figs. It was a fig region. And seen from a distance, the village has been described as remarkably beautiful, the perfection of retirement and repose, of seclusion and lovely peace. Gives you a little mental picture of what Bethany was like. The opposite of Modesto. Used to be all of those things at one time. Now it's, I won't describe it. You all know. John describes Bethany as the village of Mary and her sister Martha. You notice the descriptor in the verse. Now these two gals lived in Bethany with Lazarus, their brother. That is the family right there. You've got a brother and two sisters. And John doesn't mention any parents here. There's no parents that are mentioned. It could be that they had already passed away. John identifies Mary as the gal who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now this happened a little later. John chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. It was kind of an honorary dinner. And it says, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So John's just given us a little picture of what is going to happen or of who this woman is who anoints Jesus a little later in the narrative. Lastly, in verse 3, Mary and Martha sent a letter to Jesus stating that the one he loved, Lazarus, had become ill. And it doesn't say it, but by inference we can draw that they were not just, you know, alerting Jesus of his illness, they were beckoning and actually begging him to come to Bethany at once, to come to Lazarus's aid. So they send a distress letter to Jesus, who's on the other side of the Jordan. It takes a couple of days to get there, I would imagine. He gets it, and it says, hey, the guy you love, your friend Lazarus is dead. Please come at once. Come and do something about it, if you would. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 4a. 4a says, but when Jesus heard it, 
he said this, and this is, this is just so interesting. He says, this illness does not lead to death. What an, what an interesting thing to say, right? He, he turns to his disciples and he tells them that Lazarus' illness would not lead to death. Now, they must have been thinking, well, what a relief. You know, I hope he recovers quickly. Now, if I had been among the 12, uh, I would have easily said, well, that's, that's great news. It doesn't lead to death. He's going to be okay. But now if you drop down to verse 14, Jesus tells the same men plainly, Lazarus has died. Of course, if I was among the 12, I'd say, you just said he was, it, was gonna, it wasn't going to kill him. Make up your mind. I don't know if I would have said it like that. But you, you see that there's the potential in the narrative, in the storyline, for some confusion among the disciples. And, and, and that, is, that, is, that is the situation with them throughout the entire gospel ministry of Jesus. Misunderstanding what he's saying, not quite getting it. But I would have been perplexed here. You know, you say it's not going to kill him, and then you tell us he's died. What is it? Imagine what was going through their minds. But what was going on here? What was actually playing out here? Did Jesus as the enemies of Jesus always say, even today, look, he contradicted himself. Was he contradicting himself or something like that? Of course not. When Jesus said this illness does not lead to death, he did not mean that Lazarus was not going to die, but rather that death would not be the ultimate outcome in that situation. This is what he meant. It was as if Jesus had said, this illness will not keep Lazarus dead this is, in effect, what he's saying to them. I still would have been highly confused. Huh? Now, Jesus, it's important for you to realize, Jesus was not referring to Lazarus alone here. There's a kind of principle truth or universal truth here. Death is never the ultimate outcome for true believers, for real Christians. Death is not the final outcome. It doesn't have the last word for those of us who are in Christ, deadly illnesses like cancer and heart disease are only able to temporarily kill the flesh of a believer. They cannot kill our soul. They cannot kill our inner being, the soul, the spirit. John 8, 52. When a believer passes away, he or she simply leaves their physical body to go be with the Lord. There is no death to the believer. There is a physical thing that they experience, but their consciousness, their soul, their spirit, who they are on the inside doesn't even taste death. Comes right out of that physical body, transitions right to the Lord's presence. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 When we finally close our eyes to this fallen and jacked up world, we shall immediately reopen them in paradise. Luke 23, 43. That's what Jesus told the thief on the cross who was dying. The New Testament doesn't even use the words death or dead when describing believers who have passed away. Have you ever noticed that? Read your New Testament. It doesn't talk about believers having died. They have not died. They have fallen asleep. That's, that's the phrase that's used consistently when describing believers who have gone to be with the Lord. Matthew 27, 52, John 11, 11. It's in our text. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, 2 Thessalonians 4, 14. I know you can't keep up with all of these. What do you eventually do after sleeping for a period, unless you're, of course, a teenager? You wake up. 
right? I've got three of them, and <laughs> never-ending sleep, and I was one of them. But theoretically speaking, or logically speaking, if you sleep, eventually you're going to wake up, right? In a similar way, these physical bodies of ours will one day fall asleep and be laid in a tomb in a casket, under the ground, in a tomb, wherever, but in the twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. In other words, we may fall asleep in death, but we will be awakened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not going to stay in the tomb forever and ever and ever. We will rise and come out of the tomb if you're in Christ. So I say believers do not have to fear death. Death is actually our friend because it ushers us out of this dreadful world into the glorious presence of our Lord. Death is a friend to the believer. It is the mortal enemy of the unbeliever. But it is a friend to the true believer. Spurgeon wrote, There you shall see his face and never, never sin. There from the rivers of grace you shall drink endless pleasures in. Look at 4b. Look at 4b. It says, Jesus is continuing to speak to them. He tells them this illness is not going to kill him, basically. And then he says this, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here, Jesus was teaching his disciples that there was a divine purpose for Lazarus' death. What was the divine purpose? To bring God glory. That is the ultimate, the ultimate situation for Lazarus isn't dead, it's God's glory. It isn't death, it's God's glory. How could Lazarus' death bring God glory? Just think about that for a moment. How can death bring God glory, in particular Lazarus' death? Well, what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Verse 45, many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. Okay? So, so, so the purpose of his death and Jesus raising him is for his own glory and the glory of the Father. How is he glorified in this? People are brought to saving faith. What do believers do? Glorify God. You see the connection? This is what Jesus is telling them. Jesus performs this miracle in front of these hard-hearted Jews who have been denying him for three years. This miracle was irrefutable proof of Jesus' messiahship. And these guys could deny him no longer. And of course the Holy Spirit's there attending the whole situation and working them over and transforming their hearts. And, and what do these guys do? They become believers. And as I said, what do believers do? They glorify God. Now consider how God has used Death, the death of Jesus, even, to bring himself glory. You ever consider that? Every true believer worships and glorifies God because of what Jesus did through his death on the cross. How much glory is being ascribed by human beings, by believers, because of the death of Christ? An immense amount. We sang songs about his death. 
At the cross you died for me. We're glorifying God right in this very moment because of Jesus' death on the cross. The death of Jesus brings Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit glory. There is the purpose of the death of Christ, the glory of God. Now, the death of Jesus led to the burial and resurrection of Jesus as well, right? This is what the story of Lazarus is truly about. Do you think it's just about Lazarus? No, it isn't about Lazarus dying and being raised. It really isn't. It's about Jesus dying and being raised. It's about the gospel. It testifies to what was about to happen to Jesus in about two months. Consider how God brings himself glory through the resurrection of Jesus. By raising Jesus from the dead, God showed that he is sovereign over death. 1 Samuel 12, 16, or 12, 6. Sovereign over the one who holds the power of death, the devil. Hebrews 2, 14. And that he will one day raise the righteous to glory and the wicked to judgment. John 5, 29. This display of divine sovereignty and omnipotent power in the raising of Christ causes believers to rejoice and glorify God, doesn't it? So much glory goes to God through death. Consider how God uses the death of believers for His glory. The death of His own people. When a believer falls asleep, because that's how the New Testament describes them, God immediately brings the believer into Jesus' presence in paradise where they worship Him forever and ever and ever, where they bring Him glory. Consider how God uses the death of His enemies for His glory. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Well, when an unbeliever dies, they just go to hell and that's that and there's nothing in it and whatever and it's a terrible tragedy. Of course it is. But have you ever considered how God is glorified through that whole endeavor? Psalm 58.10 says that the righteous shall rejoice when they see God's vengeance come upon the wicked. In other words, the righteous will rejoice and worship God when they see God execute His justice against every rebel, every enemy. By way of example, listen to what believers will be saying after God destroys the new Babylon. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. Here's, the, here's what the saints are saying when God is literally in the end times destroying his enemies. Here's what the church is singing or saying. Hallelujah! Exclamation point. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! And listen to what they say, the smoke from her, right? You see this burning city, the city that's turned to ash. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now you must understand the Bible does not condone believers gloating over the downfall of an enemy because of personal vengeance. You know, we don't want to say things like, well, that guy ripped me off. I'm glad he died and went to hell. That would be about as unchristian as you can get. We don't gloat over the destruction of God's enemies, especially when it, it has to do with our own little personal context where, well, I'm glad God him back for me. That's not the way to look at it. That's wrong. That's sinful. But the Bible does command that believers rejoice and glorify God when God vindicates His righteous and holy character by destroying His enemies. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Consider how God uses death and evangelism to bring Himself glory. How many souls have been won to Christ by the Holy Spirit at deathbeds and funerals? Death forces people to face their own mortality, right? Unlike anything else. It it causes them to say, wow, that guy died. I can die. I should think about this. It causes people to face their own mortality. I have stood at the deathbed and and shared the gospel with, with the dying and even prayed for them. I have seen God open spiritual eyes and hearts in the final moment. It's quite a sight. Of course, it makes me want to drag them out and serve in the kids' ministry for a year before they go to be with the Lord because, you know, whatever all the stuff we're having to go through. You think about it, it's like, man, you get to go to heaven and you didn't have to live for Christ. Do you know how hard that was? I hope you really appreciate what God has just done for you. And they're dying, so I'm totally insensitive. There is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. You know, God has a a, t- a time for His people. And, and, and for some of His people, it's in those final moments. And how sad that is because, I mean, it's great for them that they get to go be with the Lord, but they didn't get to live in the joy of the Lord and according to His purposes their whole lives. That's the greater tragedy, but at least they now have Jesus. And I have, I have seen these things happen. As a pastor, I've been to so many hospitals and convalescent homes. And uh, Newsflash, you're all going to die. How depressing. Not if you're in Christ. I have seen peace come over people that are dying. I've even heard them whisper praises and, and, and glorify God for His saving grace in the final moments. How many souls have been won to Christ by the Spirit after the loss of a loved one? You know, at the funeral or even months or years later. This happens. This is the experience of my own family, in a sense. Mother-in-law dies and God orchestrates things after that and such a tragedy and difficulty and and God saves people in our family and he brings himself glory through it death can till the soul and prepare it to receive the seeds of the gospel I have seen unbelievers become believers by the grace of God and by the power of God at funerals and again what do believers do they glorify God fact of the matter is, all things exist for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.15, even death. Even death. Death is no doubt the final wage of sin, Romans 6.23, but in a broader sense, it exists to bring glory to God. And Jesus was about to use Lazarus' death to bring glory to God, wasn't He? Now look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now John inserted this little statement so that his readers would not see Jesus' actions in verse 6, or I should say lack of action in verse 6, as hateful and cruel. Jesus decides to delay going to Bethany so that Lazarus would die, but he didn't do that because he didn't love Lazarus. Again, he had a, there was a bigger plan, a divine plan behind this sickness and this death, and that's the glory of God. Jesus, in a sense, has to wait for Lazarus to die to be able to pull this off and bring himself and the Father glory. So, so when we read about him delaying two days, it's not because he did not love this family, as some would say. Because that's a cruel thing. You could go heal him, and then you chose not to do that, and you let him die. What's up with that? That's what the enemies would say. 
Well, it's not because that he didn't love them. He did love them. He loved them immensely. And in the same way, when believers die, it's not because Jesus does not love them. People say these things all the time. Well, that guy was such a devoted man of God, or that gal, boy, all she ever talked about was Jesus, and then look, the Lord put her to death. <laughs> what? Or the Lord let her die, how cruel. No, 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 you don't understand the way that it works. Whether he put me to death or not, I'm with him now. I'm in a much better place. People just don't understand the way that it works. I like what Erwin Lutzer said. God's love toward us does not mean that we will be spared that experience of passing through the iron gate of death. We might feel forsaken by God in that moment, but He is there. His love abides with us into eternity. Our suffering is not inconsistent with the love of God. Amen? I think death should be viewed as an act of divine love and mercy by believers because we go straight to paradise where we experience the Lord's physical presence, liberation from the flesh and sin, no more sorrow, eternal rest, eternal elation, and unimaginable blessings. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has prepared for His people. You know the text, right? 1 Corinthians 2.9, death is the believer's friend. It is. And you must understand that Jesus loved that family immensely. Letting Lazarus die of his illness was not an expression of hatred or meanness. I'll tell you, what, what, is, what expresses the Lord Jesus' love for that little family more than anything else? The raising of Lazarus? No. Because the Lord lets His people die all the time, then they go to be with Him. That's not what conveys the love of Jesus to that little family, the raising of Him. That's not it. I'm sure it conveys it in a sense, but that's not the ultimate expression of Jesus' love. The ultimate express, expression of Jesus' love for that family and for every family that belongs to Him is that on the cross He sacrificed Himself and died and bled. That's the expression. This is the symbol of love. That nasty execution device, that's it. So when you, as a believer, sense the love or the presence of God is gone, think of the cross. Think of what God did for you. If you are, if you are circling the drain on the deathbed, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not. The cross is, is a louder witness than anything in the universe a louder testimony to the love of God for those of us who are in Christ than anything else, than anything else. Now look at 6 through 8. Oops. So, and here, here's, here's where it gets iffy, where people start spinning this like crazy. And I've already told you, I've already set it up. It says, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, where is he? He's on the other side of the Jordan where John the Baptist used to do ministry. He's over there preaching the gospel, doing ministry. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. See, that's where they had come from. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, that's teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. They were trying to kill you. And you are going to go there? Question mark. So after receiving Mary and Martha's letter and, 
an urgent request to come to Lazarus' aid, Jesus delays two more days. Again, it's not because he didn't love them. No, it's not because of that. Verse 5, right? It clarifies that. Again, it's because there was a divine purpose behind the delay and death of Lazarus. And we see that in 4b, verse 15, verse 43, 44, 45. The ultimate goal and purpose in this whole situation is the glory of God. After two days, Jesus tells his disciples, it's time to go to Judea. It's time to go there. Bethany is in the province of Judea. So what he's referring to is it's time to go to Bethany in Judea. But his disciples were concerned because the violent, bloodthirsty religious leaders, they're always called the Jews in John's gospel. The Jews, the religious leaders, these violent men who wanted to kill Jesus, that's where they were headquartered in Judea, more particularly Jerusalem, just two miles away from Bethany. They said to Jesus, and this is my reply, or my paraphrase, pardon me, my paraphrase, I don't think that's a good idea to go there, Jesus. The Jews just tried to execute you there, and they're going to be in that, re- that region, that area, that territory, that city. Now look at Jesus' response to his disciples who were trying to warn him, let's not go there, it's dangerous. In verses 9 through 10, or 9 and 10, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I'm just going to cite directly from MacArthur's commentary on these verses because he does a way better job of describing what that means than I did. I was fumbling with that all week. And I just said, take it from here, MacArthur. He just does a better job than I do at times. And John Calvin's was even more descriptive and crazy, and I said, I'll go with MacArthur. It's a little easier to understand. Here is MacArthur's interpretation of what Jesus has just said. The Jews divided the daylight period into 12 hours, which, unlike modern hours, varied in length at different seasons of the year. The 12 hours in the day symbolized the duration of the Lord's earthly ministry as allotted by the Father. Just as... As no one can lengthen or shorten days, so the disciples' concern could not extend the time allotted to Jesus, nor could the Jews' hostility shorten it. The one who walks in the day need not fear that he might stumble. Thus, Jesus was perfectly safe for the prescribed time of his life. The night, signifying the end of his earthly ministry, would come at the precise time set by God's eternal plan. And only then would the Lord stumble in death. I think what Jesus, that's a pretty good good description. I think what Jesus was basically saying to his disciples is, do not fear the religious leaders. My time has not yet come. Now we see this over and over in John's gospel. They attempt to capture and kill him four or five times. He eludes and escapes. And the response given there, Jesus' time had not yet come. Jesus was in a sense, invincible until the Father's time for His arrest, betrayal, arrest, and death came. All believers are invincible. All people are, in a sense, invincible until that appointed time of their death comes. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. Don't don't fear them, for my time has not yet come. Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep spreading the gospel while it is daylight. What does He mean? While I'm still here. While I'm still here doing my earthly ministry. This is what Jesus is saying to them. 
verses 11 through 13, Jesus identifies the task at hand. Look at those verses with me. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So there's that expression, fallen asleep. The disciples said to him, look at their response. Man, this is totally me. Lord, if he, had, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. He'll wake up. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking a rest in sleep. So they just misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Well, what was that task that was at hand there that I mentioned? Lazarus had just succumbed to his illness and died. It was now time for Jesus to go to Bethany to raise him from the dead and bring glory to God. And Jesus says it very plainly, i got to go awaken him. But like I said, they did not understand what he was saying. They thought that he was referring to actual sleep. Really what they were doing is they were continuing to try to dissuade Jesus from going to Judea. Well, there's no reason to go there, Jesus, if he's just sleeping, because he'll get better and wake up. So you still don't have to go there. This is what they're saying to him. I love how they try to run Jesus' life. Right? They always do. They always try to run everything, and they always jack everything up. And that's pretty much what I do when I try to run my own life. In verse 13, John tells us that the disciples totally misunderstood Jesus. Notice that in 13. And, and, and this is John saying, look, they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But I want you to notice how he wrote they. They. Apparently, John, who was one of them, was not among the confused. <laughs> you know, when you get to write something, you make yourself look good? I don't think that's actually what he was trying to do, but he did put they and he was one of them. Why didn't he put we? We didn't understand. He puts they. It was they, the 11 that were confused, not me. I knew what Jesus meant. I'm the one he loves. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. John would like slap me right now. In any case, he was among them, and he was undoubtedly just as confused as the rest. Now look at our last set of verses, 14 through 16. 14 through 16. It says, then Jesus told them plainly, you know, because they weren't getting it. Lazarus has died, right? Read my lips. Lazarus has died. And look at what he says here. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. What? Talk about insensitive, not really, but it seems like it. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. And then he says, but let us go to him. Interesting. And then in 16, it says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's not talking about Lazarus. He's already dead. He's talking about Jesus. Now, Jesus just plainly tells them Lazarus is dead. Okay, look, guys, he's asleep means he's died. He's succumbed to his illness. But he also says that he's glad he wasn't in Bethany to heal him, which is such an interesting statement. Now, just think about the implications of what he's saying. You have to look beyond the surface. If he had healed Lazarus, it would have had little to no impact on the disciples' faith because they had already seen Jesus perform countless healings. So many healings, John says there's not enough books in the entire world to list them all at the very end of his gospel. He's using hyperbole, but Jesus did a lot. And they had seen every kind of miracle, every kind of healing, just everything. And so if he just goes there and heals Lazarus, it's not going to have the same impact on him if he does it differently. 
If Jesus raised, if he let him die and let him sit in a tomb and become stinketh, because that's how it describes him, right after four days of death, you're going to stinketh. If he lets him die and stinketh for four days in a tomb and raises him, that would have a profound impact on their faith, wouldn't it? That would have a different impact, at least a different impact on their faith than just performing another healing. And I think that would be marvelous. MacArthur again, the Lord's point was that Lazarus's raising from the dead would do far more to strengthen his disciples' faith than healing alone would have done. And I'll I'll just pause there. You've got to understand that Jesus puts a very high premium on our faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he will do all sorts of things to, he'll do everything to protect it, but do all sorts of things to sanctify us, grow that faith, mature that faith. And that's what he's aiming to do here. He puts a very high premium on that gift of faith that he has bestowed upon his people. He's the author and perfecter. By perfecting, he perfects it through trial. He perfects it through difficulty. He perfects it through study and these sorts of things. Continuing, Jesus' time on earth was rapidly nearing its end. This is MacArthur. And with the cross looming ever nearer, the disciples needed a powerful support for their faith. Very interesting. At the end of verse 15, Jesus said, but let us go to him. And Jesus' disciple, Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, he... uh, He obviously failed to grasp what the Lord meant in verses 9 through 10, right? Like, hey, don't worry about it. I've got my allotted time and it's not now. They're not going to take me out. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying. He didn't understand really any of it. He didn't understand that the Lord's days were not going to be cut short by the religious leaders. He did, however, display courage when he exhorted the others, when he encouraged the others to take the risk and go with Jesus and him to Bethany, didn't he? He said, let us also go that we may die with him. In other words, we'll go with Jesus. Jesus wants to go. We'll go with him. And if they kill him, they can kill us too. So be it. This is what he says. A moment of great courage for Thomas, but just a couple of months later when Jesus is betrayed and arrested in in the garden, Thomas and all the rest of them ran for the hills. Isn't the Christian life just like that, there are moments of great courage and moments of total sissy la-la. Amen? Aren't you glad? I know, that's my, that means wimpy, just in case you don't know what sissy la-la means. It's my way of saying it. You just think about that in your own Christian life. Jesus puts such a high premium on your faith, you're never going to lose it. He uses those experiences, those moments of weakness to build it, those trials to build it, and that's what he's doing here. But that describes our Christian life. Moments of courage where we say, I'll go die with him. And then other moments where we say, I don't know Jesus. Look at Peter. He's a prime example. He's most certainly the the most fearless and bold of the apostles or the disciples during the ministry. And there were times where he said, you know, I'll die with you, Jesus. And then there was another moment where he denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. It's the Christian life. Thank God for the grace of God. Thank God for him. I, I'm just so thankful that, that, that my, it's, it, what he has done for me isn't based on my courage or weakness. It's based on the work of Christ. Closing. I've got two thoughts for you as we wrap up. 
First, there was a divine purpose behind Lazarus' death, the glory of God. There is a divine purpose behind your circumstances, the glory of God. If you're a believer, God is working through your circumstances, your situation to sanctify and make you more like Jesus for His glory, for His glory. He uses the good, He uses the bad, He even uses the ugly to shape and conform His people to the image of Christ. Nothing, nothing is wasted. He uses all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He uses everything. By way of encouragement, the the path may be narrow and fraught with great difficulty, but don't forget where it leads to. Paradise. Paradise. Press on, Christians. Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.14. That's my admonition or encouragement to you, exhortation to you believers. If you're an unbeliever, God could be using your circumstances to show you that you need Jesus. He certainly could be using your situation, whatever it is that you're going through, things that you've gone through in the past, whatever. He could be using those things to show you that you need Jesus. He could actually be causing you to to hit rock bottom so that you will discover He's the rock at the bottom. He does this. And sometimes He brings the rebel to the rebel's wit's end to reveal himself. If that's you, do not mislabel or try to put an earthly spin on what's happening to you. This is what we do. We, I was an unbeliever for most of my life, and we just rationalize everything, or we just say the universe is being cruel to me. The universe doesn't know you. Don't Try to spin what is happening to you. Don't don't try to mislabel and call it something that it isn't. Things happen. All things happen for a divine reason, and that divine reason is Jesus. He's it. The fact is you need Him. Repent and, and believe in Jesus by grace through faith. Believe that He alone lived for your righteousness, died for your sins, was buried to settle your account, and rose three days later victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. I'm just going to ask you this question. Do you want heaven to rejoice when God vindicates himself against his enemies, against you? Think about that. No, you don't want that. Instead, cause the angels to rejoice because of your repentance. It's precisely what they do when one sinner repents and believes in Christ by grace through faith. Second, I have described how God uses death to bring himself glory. (laughs) You must understand that he also uses life to bring himself glory, not just death. And this is what he 
desires and wants from His people. He wants us to live our lives for His glory. How do we do this? Primarily by obeying His Word, Scripture. That's primarily how we do it. We look to the Scripture, we, we see His will for our lives and what He wants from us, and we obey and we do as, as He commands, and we do what pleases Him. Now, I could spend many sermons describing to you what that looks like, but I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to tell you in this moment what it looks like for you. One thing that Scripture tells believers to do is be baptized. That's one thing. In Acts 2.38, the Apostle Peter commanded his hearers to repent. What is repent? Stop rejecting Jesus as Christ and Lord and, as Christ as Lord and Savior. And he also commanded that they be baptized. What does he mean there? He means be immersed in water to express your repentance and faith in Christ, your belonging to Christ. You must understand that that command in Acts 2.38 is universal. It applies to every believer. When a believer gets baptized, he or she is literally obeying God's word and encouraging others to follow their example. Baptism identifies the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Why would a believer not want to be identified with the person and work of the one who saved them through baptism? This might be the question that baffles me the rest of my life. I have met, I don't know how many believers who have not yet been baptized and have no desire to do it. They have no problem with taking communion. Listen, if you can take communion, you can get baptized. Every believer should be baptized. It is a matter of obedience. It is a matter of being identified with the one who saved you. Baptism also identifies the believer with the Lord's people. When a believer gets baptized, he or she is telling those present that they belong to the universal body of believers, the whole church, and to a particular body of believers, a local church like this one. In the first century, new converts, people who had just gotten saved, were immediately baptized, not months, days, or years later, but immediately baptized and then added to the church. And this tells us that there is a connection between baptism and belonging. Well, I'm excited to announce that we have a handful of believers with us today who desire to obey Scripture, be identified with our Savior and His church through baptism. Okay? We have a handful of them here that are going to do that. And right now, I'd like to invite the band, the worship team, to go ahead and come forward. And we have to have a moment where those of us who are involved in that have to go change and get ready. And they're going to lead you in a song. And you can just sing and enjoy the song, and then I'll get back with you in just a few moments, okay? All right? Perfect.